on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, Bushy Park in the Doohan Valley, a hive of activity as the latest hop harvest gets into full swing. Rapid expansion in our uh, seasonal workforce. We'll be, we will have something like 125 um, seasonal workers on the farm right now, working alongside our uh, 25 full-timers up there. And conflicting figures this week about the expansion of the salmon industry in Tasmania. Just in the Atlantic salmon industry alone, we know by the number of fingerlings in the hatcheries right now that we're expecting 15% growth in the next 18 months. And yet the data today was saying it's going to flatline. Yeah, look at the aquaculture industry coming up from the ABS conference in Canberra. And also the annual March hop harvest finally underway after a delayed start. G'day, Tony, with you on this Thursday, where we also discover a hive beetle in a sentinel hive at Devonport and what that could mean for the Tasmanian bee industry. Plus today, a look at the autumn conditions on a few Tasmanian farms and the rise of young female technicians wanting to work on big tractors and harvesters. Plus, of course, as usual, a check on the weather and we take your thoughts on any issues via the text line. Let us know what you're thinking. 0438 922936. 0438 922936 is that number. First up today, the commercial beekeeping industry in Tasmania has described the detection of small hive beetle at a Tasmanian port as potentially disastrous for the industry. Biosecurity Tasmania has confirmed a single small hive beetle has been found in a guard hive located at Devonport. A 15-kilometre bee movement restriction area has been established around the site, which is believed to be at the port of Devonport. President of Tasmanian Beekeepers Association, Lindsay Burke, says small hive beetle can kill entire hive populations. Look, hive beetle is a terrible thing. It gets into hives, it slimes them out. Uh, Our mainland counterparts are having a terrible time with it. We certainly don't want it to get into Tasmania. Well, obviously they've found it. They found one in the guard hive at the Devonport port. Yes, they have. That's not good news. So it could have come in, it would not have come in on bees because we have a blanket ban on bees coming in at the moment until we sort out the varroa situation. So it could have come in on fruit that's rotten fruit or something like that. It can come in on those items. So we don't have this uh, hive beetle currently in Tasmania? No, we do not. So it has a little bit of a hard time struggling in the colder temperatures that we have south, but it is really bad on the eastern states, especially in Newcastle and Sydney and places like that, really bad with high humidity and uh, warmer temperatures. It's a shocking thing. So what could it mean for Tasmania, do you think? I mean, it's not for Roa Mike, but is it just as bad? No, almost as bad. It, uh, it kills hives that aren't uh, looked after by beekeepers. It completely slows them out. It doesn't only pick on the small hives, it gets into big, strong, powerful hives as well. It's a shocking thing. My son, who was a biosecurity officer in New South Wales, tells me about it, uh, how, uh, you know, devastation it is. It completely ruins beehives. Does it actually we... attack each bee or attack the hive as a no, structure? It, it, no, it, 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 
it puts a yeast right through the hive at, uh, and, uh, and, and all the maggots grow and they slime it all out. It's terrible. It's a shocking thing. Ruins the honey and the bees actually get that bad. The bees leave. Okay, so not good for beekeepers, whether it be commercial or amateur, also not good for exports of bees overseas and interstate? It would be very bad for our packaged bee industry that um, we send bees at this time of the year to Canada to replenish the ones that have lost because of Roa over their winter because they're They've got spring now, so that'd be very bad for them. No, and it'd be very bad for all the feral hives that live in in in, uh, in the country and in the bee trees and things right through Tasmania. And those feral hives are very valuable to us because they help us pollinate our crops. Uh, we pollinate with our commercial crops, but the feral hives do add five to ten percent pollinating, which helps everybody. So what now? What do you think the industry needs to do now and biosecurity? Well, uh, biosecurity's put, uh, they've been very good and they've put a 12-kilometre radius around this to the, get to the Denport bottom of port. it. The Devonport port. And so any hives within that area will certainly will check them and uh, we commercial beekeepers will not take any hives anywhere near that when we bring them home from the West Coast because Every hive in Tasmania is on the West Coast still at the moment, getting the last of the very poor season that we're having this year, and then we will migrate them home. We won't go anywhere near this incursion. Okay, and do beekeepers have to keep an eye on their own hives? Definitely, definitely, and we're not used to this. We uh, we do inspect their hives more than anybody else in Australia. Uh, that's the only way we can do beekeeping in Tasmania. We've got to make sure that we have very healthy, strong, big hives to get our very short honey season when it comes in. So we are, we will be on the lookout for that. We're having uh, an executive meeting uh, here at Sheffield soon, and we'll get onto this and make sure that everybody is aware of this and keep inspecting their hives. The president of Tasmanian Beekeepers Association, Lindsay Burke, chatting there to Fiona Breen about the discovery of another pest, hive beetle, that could threaten Tasmania's beekeeping sector. Well, Tasmania's largest hop harvest is underway in the Derwent Valley after a tough and slower growing season than normal. Hop Products Australia marketing manager Owen Johnston says the harvest began a little later this season. We had a coolish spring here in Tassie, quite different to our spring experience on our Victorian acreage, which was very wet. Uh, and also cool. So we had a, a pretty a pretty slow but steady growing season. But when the weather turned, or perhaps up in the Derwent Valley uh, mid-January, we really saw some good flower set. And uh, of course, the, what the brewer is after, that hop cone, grows at those flowering sites. So we had good good flower set and uh, and cone formation followed. And I'd say we're probably probably starting this year just a few days later than last year's harvest. Expectations for the amount you'll harvest? Uh, modest. I think we will come in on budget on our on our estimates for most of our varieties. Some are looking a little light, but we shall see. It's an old maxim of our industry that you, um, you don't know what you get until you press it into a bale. Yeah. Would it be um, right to say that we needed more warmer days in uh, in the last few months? Yes, and and temperature is one part of the equation, but also just that bright sun, uh, you know, bright sunny days, cloudless uh, skies, and and I think that's been the missing ingredient over 
all of these La Nina years, you know, it's kind of a pattern characterised by the cooler daytime temperatures, um, cloud cover and increased rainfall. So really hitting us hitting us uh, on a number of the fronts where the, the hot plant would really like to finish off the growing season and, and, and mature these hop cones with bright sunny days. At this time of the year, still warm days but cold nights. We certainly got one of those last night and, and that would bring the cones into full maturity. Now, has Bushy Park turned into a mini city? <laughs> it tends to at this time of year. We have uh, a very uh, rapid expansion in our uh, seasonal workforce, and we'll be we'll have something like 125 um, seasonal workers on the farm right now, working alongside our uh, 25 full timers up there. You know, the the full time crew do an amazing job pivoting away from their day to day farm operations role of of growing. You know, the main farming and growing uh, roles they provide into these very specialised um, seasonal, you know, harvest time only roles where they operate the drying floors and the picking machines and the bale press and the pellet plant. So, uh, uh, you know, very grateful to the flexibility and the talent of our team up there at Bushy Park. Has it become more mechanised over the years and, in fact, you need less or fewer people working? Well, actually, no. We're pretty we're pretty steady. We haven't been able to introduce new technology as it relates to um, some of the very manual operations on the farm, the deployment of the strings that the plant grows up, the training of the first runners that emerge in spring, the loading of harvested binds onto the picking machines, all of this is still manual. Dozens of manual moves per string to uh, facilitate the growing and then harvesting of this crop. It's, it seems an anomaly in this day and age, doesn't it? It sure does. It sounds, it sounds something that, that should have moved on by now, to be honest. <laughs> but no one has quite cracked it. And this is, this is worldwide, manual harvesting and the same techniques that we used in the 70s are still persisting today around the global growing regions. Um, there are a number of different sort of styles around the world. We've been using our style now for uh, quite some time, since at least the late 80s. So the important thing, once you get the flowers off, what happens then? So once they're through the picker, they get loaded onto a drying floor. We, we call it a kiln floor. We dry them uh, and that stabilises them, you know, in a way it helps us preserve them so that we can then uh, press them into bales. If people can think back to the old wool bales, um, around about 75 kilos now for us versus the older, heavier 110 kilo bales. They go off to cool store, then back to the farm for movement into our pelleting plant where we produce that final package of the pellet, the hop pellets that the brewers receive in their modified atmosphere packaging, shelf stable for a number of years. And eventually, uh, where do the hops go? To the craft beer section? Is that getting bigger and bigger? Well, Tony, globally, we still see that drive for diversity in flavour. Uh, so, so what what you've called sort of craft beer there, I'd, I'd more like called diverse flavour in beer. Um, now, and I say that because a lot of the big brewing companies have quite a diverse range of beers on the market nowadays, and our hops are all about hop forward beer. It's, it doesn't matter. I don't really mind who makes it, and on how much scale, you know, how big the scale is that they are manufacturing on. So, for me, it's about the intent of the beers, and uh, we still see that. Uh, going strong. I don't think, as a consumer trend, I don't think that flavour forward beers will will ever uh, disappear. So, we have seen 
in the in the sort of current macroeconomic climate, we have seen some downturn in uh, in demand for our varieties. But uh, as the as the US market in particular is um, softening, uh, we're seeing some realignment with uh, supply and demand. We'll um, you know we'll be keeping a really close eye on which varieties that we grow that seem to soften. Uh, luckily for us, and we're quite a unique business in this way worldwide. We're a fully vertically integrated farming and selling operation. So if we get feedback from the market that a variety isn't as popular as it used to be, we don't need to go back to the growing base and renegotiate supply contracts with farmers, etc. We are the farmer. So we can make very rapid changes and uh, stay really quite nimble, um, aligning what we make with what the market needs. Is it a tougher market these days or is it still going pretty well? I think it's always pretty tough. The um, The number of new hops coming onto the market is, as far as I'm concerned, it's more rapid than ever. There's plenty of competition around supply into breweries. Uh, there are a number of, a number of uh, operators in this industry. Um, we still enjoy a, an amazing level of local support. We have, you know, per capita, Australia is actually our biggest market. And, and I just feel so good about that because... I feel like we have a very strong home-based support. Uh, I'm very grateful for that. Um, and we love being connected with our local breweries. We love being able to enjoy our hops in uh, in local beers. And a question from left field. A lot of produce that's grown locally in Tasmania can be used in many diverse ways. Can you use hops for anything else? Is there anything else you're looking at? There's a few cottage industries out there that use hops as a microbiological uh, antimicrobe agent in this way, um, some for the aromatic properties. Uh, there's some interesting research on some active chemical compounds in hops um, that relate to certain cancer treatments. So that's a little bit out of our field uh, as a humble farming operation. But we do see hops of general interest outside of, of you know, the targeted placement in brewing. But as yet... We haven't really seen them adopted um, in uh, any major way for, you know, say the pharmaceutical industry. And, and now that could be a, quite a significant change if, if that does occur. If there's a compound of interest found in the chemical makeup of hops, that could be um, a very significant change to uh, the industry we operate in. And I'm assuming you're keeping your eye on that. As much as possible. Middle of harvest, I'm, I'm pretty much keeping my eye on the weather. <laughs> Well, good luck with the harvest. Tony, thanks very much and uh, look forward to talking to you after harvest perhaps. Owen Johnston, Marketing Manager of Hop Products Australia, talking about the latest hop harvest at Bushy Park. No newfangled way of getting the hops planted or taken off, doing what they were doing back in the 80s and uh, keeping a close eye on the weather as well. Well, coming up in the country, our final financial at least problems for the Federal Department of Agriculture and how a number of local farmers are coping with the early autumn conditions. This week on Landline, flooding along the Darling River. Three years ago we were in a solid drought, so we had no water in the river. <laughs> exactly opposite. But, you know, that's, that's living on the land. And the Tassie wool grower doing it her way. I kind of have given up on caring about what people think. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView.
Coast to Coast. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry is on the cusp of requiring a financial bailout as it falls hundreds of millions of dollars into the red. One insider with knowledge of the cash flow woes described the department's finances as custard. Another has told the ABC the situation is desperate and must be addressed within months. Warwick Long is speaking to ABC Rural's Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan, who's been exposing the details of the department's dire finances. We've learned that the department could be in debt to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, I've heard differing views as to how long this problem's been festering for, uh, but we know that the department has had to take action and it's notified staff of some of the cost-cutting measures. This includes a ban on all travel and training for staff and the the ending of several contracts for contracted workforce. We understand that uh, permanent staff won't be affected by the cost-saving measures, but the department's already started uh, ceasing or ending ending contracts with some of its contracted workforce. And it's worth pointing out, Warwick, that the amount of spending that goes on to contractors from the department has really increased over the last little while. Um, about a decade ago, the spend was something like $5 million. More recently in 2021-22, we saw the spend on contractors up close to $90 million um, per year. So uh, that's one area that the department's clearly identified as an area where it can save money. And Kath, this is a department that does important work on behalf of the government, Mm. either managing biosecurity risks, uh, working with industries that, as we've learnt this week, are are valued at over $90 billion right now. Are any of those works from the department at risk? Well, the department tells us that all essential services will continue and remain unaffected by these budgetary constraints. You touch on biosecurity there, and we know the role that uh, our biosecurity frontline plays in protecting agriculture from things like foot and mouth disease, which has the potential to wipe that $90 billion just about off off the trade. But, you know, that's just agriculture. There's $6 trillion worth of environmental assets that could be uh, implicated if we don't have a strong biosecurity defence line. And some of the services that the department provides or performs are things like at quarantine, ensuring that travellers returning from Bali are walking over foot mats to, to disinfect their boots, scanning mail coming into the country to ensure that there's no uh, meat product that hasn't been treated or, or that is coming in with without proper permits, things like sniffer dogs in our airports and at our ports. It's also overseeing uh, our international trade and ensuring regulation of uh, animal welfare standards for live exports. And it's probably worth pointing out was that The Department of Agriculture is a little bit different to other um, federal public bureaucracies in that it's a a large amount of its funding actually comes from cost recovery or or fees for services. That is, people who use these services, who use these um, biosecurity services, for example, are the ones who actually pay. And this is a system that hasn't been reviewed um, since 2015, um, so eight years now, and we have seen a lot of changes to the demand on biosecurity services. You think about the way that COVID has impacted the supply chain and our freight and shipping channels um, and just 
the threats that we're seeing. Um, I touched on African swine fever and uh, foot and mouth disease, which of course are inching ever closer to Australia's shores. So the threats are increasing, demand for services is increasing, but somehow the finances haven't been able to keep up and we know that the department's spending more money than it's got coming in. You hear about a government department having a shortfall Mm. in its budget. What does that actually mean, I suppose, in the day-to-day until something is sorted out here? Well, it means that they're spending more money than they've got coming in. We're yet to hear from the government um, since learning about the extent of the the cost blowout at the department. We're hoping the Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, might be available um, shortly. He has oversight of the department and we know that they've had to cut services. It sounds like a quite a stressful time for people who work within the department, for people who rely on their services. Now, the department's told us that essential services aren't being affected by this cost-cutting endeavour, we'll call it. It says that it is ensuring that it meets all of its statutory responsibilities, that essential services are going ahead. But I think that we're going to see a lot more questions asked about this in the coming days, weeks and months. And now I think it's becoming even clearer that this next coming federal budget, due in just a couple of months in May, we'll need to go some way to addressing um, and funding these really important services. ABC Rural's Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan talking there to Warwick Long. You can read more online at excuse me, ABC Rural, about the Federal Department of Agriculture falling hundreds of millions of dollars into the red. Well, it's definitely feeling like we're settling into autumn. Well, there's been a bit of rain around the last week or two. For some farmers, it's been pretty dry. Larissa Smith caught up with a few farmers to find out how their properties are geared up for the cooler months ahead. I'm Yuri Wolfert from Kindred, and um, yeah, we grow potatoes, vegetables, Brussels sprouts and a few cereals. Summer's been uh, pretty much a waiting game with most of the cereal harvest being probably around two weeks later than, than normal following the wet spring that has caused that when it's widespread through the whole of Australia. So we, we've never had any uh, let up from the water on, on the dam. Our spillway's still overflowing. We've not even been able to pump it dry. It's uh, couple of our paddocks in a, a bit of a tight spot and one that we haven't been able to get some crop in. The others have been, we've just put cover crop in instead. So, yeah. Could you see if there's been any negative effects from water logging in the last few months? Can you see that appearing in any of the plants? Yeah, there's a little bit of yellowing from water logging, but uh, it's not too bad because the, the crops that were supposed to go in didn't end up going in. One was actually supposed to be potatoes, but we couldn't get on it, so we just went with an alternative and we'll make do with that. Tim Reid, you're at Rosevale running your beef property. Are you set up for autumn as, as best you'd like to be? To take a step back to spring was amazing, but just so long leading into summer, which made it really hard for us to actually plan for a normal summer for us. But then all of a sudden drying out so quick made it tricky from trying to do silage and hay to just being so dry so fast and for so long it's probably been one of our driest summers we've had but because of such an amazing spring we were set up well enough to keep our grazing going right through and basically right through the last just last week we're on our last paddock that we do basically a three-month rotation so it's almost come perfectly with this autumn break if it is 
and we've already started drilling a couple of paddocks in, hoping in the next few weeks to actually progress that further across the farm in our multi-species mixes. You are big on, on cover cropping. Are you doing anything differently with the mix that you're putting in? Uh, we'll be trialling a few other species this year. Keeping a little bit of height down, I guess, will be one thing. Um, and maybe speeding our rotation up a little bit. We've been a little bit understocked in the past, but it's a learning curve by just different techniques and management across the farm and what we can actually run as our stocking rate. And numbers-wise, what are you running at the moment? We've doubled our stocking rate in the last three years again um, and still sitting on almost being understocked still. So, yeah, we're retaining pretty much all of our heifers from this year just to give some lighter animals for the wetter areas through the winter. G'day, I'm Nigel Russell, I'm at Lilydale. And what do you farm, Nigel? Grass, and I feed that to cattle. How are you set up for autumn? Yeah, looking pretty good. Yeah, good good pasture cover, bit of rain. It's been, summer's been kind. Bit of rain for autumn would, you know, just keep us ticking along. The cattle are looking okay? They've got condition on them? Yeah, they, yeah, they have. The, um, the old girl's have uh, been up onto some uh, lesser country doing it tough but they've, they're coming out the other side looking okay still. And what's your approach to selling those animals this year? The, the market has come off considerably. We'll probably drop some into the wiener market and hang on to some some others. Better cattle probably, better wieners will probably go out into some lease box. That's Lilydale beef farmer Nigel Russell talking about how his cattle are faring at the moment. In the dairy game, it's been a mixed bag getting the farm prepped for autumn. Some farmers just produced enough silage to get by. Others missed the boat completely because of the floods in October. I'm Fiona Salter. We farm in Meander, northern Tasmania. So we're just starting to increase the right round out now, feed out a little bit of silage, make sure the girls are in good condition. We've had some just... Surprise rains at nice times, uh, just to tick over the the dry lands still still growing. So that's nice. Yeah, nice change. And how are you going for silage in your store? We didn't actually get to make any this year because we got flooded just at the wrong time, and um, so we've just had to buy silage. So it's an expensive year. I think for a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> I'm Shailen Van Brett, and I farm at Ringaruma in the northeast of Tasmania. We have increased our grain that we've fed daily and yeah, started putting silage into the girls' daily feed to try and stretch out our pasture rotation. How was the rainfall for you over there? We didn't get a lot of rainfall over the summer, so yeah, we've been irrigating pretty heavily. Dad's done a great job at keeping the pivots, hard hose and laterals going, and the farm looks great considering. What we would, where we would normally get 200 bales, we got 100, and not the same quality either. That's Yeah, we're going to be pushing it. Like we've been farming in Tassie for 27 years, and we were down to the 14-day rotation in December. So silage that we had made and cured three weeks before, we were just feeding out again. That would be one of Dad's toughest seasons, him managing the pasture. And, yeah, we managed to slowly stretch it back out. But, yeah, mid-December was scary for Ringaruma. I'm Georgia Green and I farm in Montana. How have you been gearing up for autumn? Yeah, much the same as Fiona, just making sure that all the girls are happy and healthy and, I don't know, preparing like you normally would. <laughs> and uh, rainfall in your neck of the woods over summer? Yeah, not too bad as well. Um, I really think that that massive rainfall in September, I believe, we had, I think that sort of just kept everything a lot more wet than usual I think that it sort of yeah set the tone for just kept everything wet for a long time but yeah in the through the summer wasn't too bad yeah 
How was your grass growth? Mm, not too bad. I don't think. I don't think it was amazing, but um, yeah, we managed to to get by. So yeah, it's good. Yeah, silage isn't too bad. I think that we got enough. Yeah, I think we managed to just get by. So that's good. We didn't have to buy any or anything like that, which is lucky. But yeah. Couple of dairy farmers there across the northwest region chatting to Meg Powell about the current season. Coming up. An update on the fisheries, including conflicting numbers for the salmon industry and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. A cement carrier that sank two tugboats in Tasmania's northwest last year also experienced engine failure this week, prompting authorities to briefly ban it from entering Tasmanian waters. Tasport say human error was to blame for Goliath's engine issue. It will now allow the ship into Tasmania after the company operating it provided a report detailing remedial actions following the incident. The Greens say they are prepared to support the federal government's $15 billion National Reconstruction Fund, having secured an agreement to prevent it from investing in coal and gas projects. The fund will invest in Australian manufacturing projects in areas such as medical science, transport and renewable energy. A new report released today says there's been an alarming rise in the number of pieces of microplastics in the oceans. The study by non-profit organisation Five Gyrus says there are now over 170 trillion plastic particles floating in the world's oceans. And police and emergency services are on the scene of a single truck crash on the causeway between Sorrell and Midway Point. The truck is currently in the water and the causeway is blocked. At this stage, no serious injuries injuries have been reported. Motorists are advised to avoid the area. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Luke Johnson joins us from Nibiru. G'day Luke. Hey Tony, how are you going today? Yeah, pretty good for uh, Thursday, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah yes. it's my Friday though in the sequence, so that's all right. That's not bad. Now any part of the state seeing the sun at the moment? Uh, there's probably a little tiny bit up near St Helens at the moment that's still seeing a little bit of sun, but there's a, a sort of a shield of some middle-level cloud drifting over at the moment. So fairly consistent westerly stream still, although you know tapering off a bit from recent days. Had plenty of showers into the west of the state, and we're just starting to see some uh, light showers spill over uh, the remaining parts of Tassie at the moment, although very little is reaching that east coast. It's in a, a nice little rain shadow today. So not expecting huge rainfall totals today, uh, away from the west, you know, even there only getting around 5 to 15 millimetres. And into tomorrow we'll see some more showers come into the west, but uh, a fine day expected elsewhere, maybe some morning fog patches around uh, tomorrow morning and, and Saturday morning as well. Okay. And uh, has there been any rainfall of note or is it just annoying? Uh, I wouldn't say annoying, but, yeah, there's, there's been a little bit of rain. It's mostly into the west, sort of in the range of three to eight millimetres, but it's the kind where we're, we're likely to be seeing a bit of, you know, snow melt from the higher peaks from yesterday, sort of, you know, flushing yeah. through the gauges as well. Uh, so not, not heaps of rainfall. But not annoying for farmers who really do need it. <laughs> No, no, that's right. It's, no, it's, it's, we've been very sheltered everywhere away from the west uh, so far this week, which makes sense with the, the westerly stream just slamming everything into the hills and the plateau and, and mm. sort of petering off before it comes over. Yeah. Is there any on the horizon over the next week or so? 
Uh, not really. So what, we're, we're going to go into a ridge-dominated period this weekend, so relatively light winds return to milder conditions. Uh, there'll be some showers developing about the northeast and the northwest, mostly about high ground, uh, on Monday and Tuesday next week. And then it looks like we'll get another decent-sized cold front come across the state uh, towards the end of next week. Some models are actually indicating that we could see uh, a bit of a, a burst of warm temperatures again towards the middle to late part of next week. We could be up into the high 20s or low 30s again. Uh, but it is very much dependent on the timing of the cold front coming at the end of next week. Okay. And in general, the temperatures, what, uh, low 20s coming up? Yeah, that's right. So yesterday was quite cold. It only got to 16 in Hobart, expecting a top of 18 today. And then we're back into the low 20s for the next couple of days, maybe maybe bump down a little bit Sunday afternoon with a, a slight change in, in air from the south, but nothing nothing terribly significant, no big cold fronts. No heat waves, unfortunately. And do we see some more? Yeah, do we see some more sun? <laughs> yeah, well, we should see plenty more sun in the coming days. So the the cloud that's over us now is in the tail end of some some westerlies, and the next couple of days, a high pressure system is going to drift over the state. So that should suppress some of the cloud activity and give us uh, some some clearer some clearer skies for the next couple of days, at least in the east and south. Okay, uh, warnings. What have we got? Well, warnings uh, fairly. Fairly stock standard uh, stuff, so a strong wind warning today for all coastal waters apart from the Upper East Coast, where there's a bit more shelter. Tomorrow, a strong wind warning current for northern coastal waters between Stanley and St Helens, and southern and western waters between Tasman Island and Sandy Cape. Out on the coastal waters today, probably no surprises. Westerly, uh, 20 to 30 knots, a little lighter inshore about the east coast, tending a bit more west and northwesterly tomorrow in the range of 15 to 25 knots and reaching 30 knots about the far south and through Bass Strait. In terms of swell about the west and south, there's a southwesterly five to six metres today, gradually decaying during the course of the day and tending west to southwesterly around three metres tomorrow. Through Bass Strait, a westerly one to two metres offshore, decaying a little bit tomorrow. Up the east coast, a south to southwesterly one to two metre swell, also decaying a little bit tomorrow. And significant wave height in the west coast, 3.6 metres at the moment, and off the east coast, uh, just under one metre. So everything's still relaxing after Tuesday's big front. I reckon. Okay. Just a bit more sun and uh, that'll do it, I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll lodge the support, chick, uh, support ticket now to request more sun and I'll see if the IT people can tweak the radar to emit some sunshine. And maybe some more rain overnight. That'll yeah, do it. That'll yeah. be perfect. Rain, just as much rain as you want, exactly <laughs> where you want it and when you want it, and then sunny where you want it to be at the right place as well. <laughs> will, it, will, it, will it ever get to that stage where we'll be able to do that? I... Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine us not getting to that stage. I think the question is going to just be if we can survive long enough to develop the technology. Yeah. That's I'll a see philosophical in a, thought for you. I'll see you in a million years. <laughs> yeah, we'll still be here, surely. <laughs> Good on you, Luke. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks. Luke Johnston from the Bureau with the latest information for you. Coming up, we'll look at uh, future fisheries and some interesting figures on the Atlantic salmon industry. This week on Landline, fighting spray drift in the cotton industry. Up until December, hadn't received many complaints about spray drift damage, but they're coming in thick and fast now. And the power of leaky weirs. We've been able to slow the water down, spread the water out, enable it to soak more effectively into the, the floodplain itself. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
0438922936 is that text line number. George on the text line says, Tony, there's no excuse for the federal agriculture budget blowout. The Minister and Secretary would be in constant touch and the Finance Minister would also have regular updates. It's just sheer incompetence by those in the know. If this is how we run our most important department, how can we trust any Treasurer's budget predictions? Thank you for that, George. Well, the predictions from ABARES were there this week. Australian farmers have produced their most valuable year yet, growing $90 billion worth of food and fibre. But some in the fishery sector are saying that figure could have been even higher. They're calling for a change to data collection methods to fully grasp the growth of Australia's aquaculture industry. Managing Director of Fisheries Research and Development Corporation, Patrick Hone, has told Alice Marshall where the discrepancies in the ABARE report lie. So currently the commercial value according to ABARES in the report that came out today is around about $3.55 billion. Unfortunately, the, behind every number, there is a lot of missing numbers. And I think the thing that we note today is that there's a lot of industries that aren't counted in that statistic, uh, particularly the seaweed, emerging industries, the vertically integrated industries. So we don't see, like in uh, grapes, the wine value, if that makes sense. So we don't see the vertically integrated value. Um, if we look to the future, so the number right now and what it could be next year and the year after, just in the Atlantic salmon industry alone, we know by the number of fingerlings in the hatcheries right now that we're expecting 15% growth in the next 18 months. And yet the data today was saying it's going to flatline. Nevertheless, if we look across all the sectors, prawn farming, barra farming, Murray cod farming, seaweed farming, if you look at the current investment and you realise that as a gross value of production in the next one, two, five and ten years, every one of those sectors is growing at 10 plus. Some of those sectors are growing at 50% plus and some are growing at 100%. Now when you're on a low base, for example Murray cod, you're relatively low, you can grow at quite high percentages, that makes sense. Uh, and some sectors which are more mature, like salmon, which are already billion-dollar industries, are only growing at 12%. I'd love to get 12% on my money. Yeah, 12% is still quite a lot. 12% is still amazing growth. Um, So that's fish farming. Wild catch sector is still growing. It's often not talked about. And the opportunity to grow wild catch and integrate it with our uh, recreational value, which is roughly about $11 billion. But the wild catch sector is still a really, really important part. And so we've spoken about the growth that we can see is going to happen over the next couple of years in fisheries. Can we see that same, like, have we got figures when it comes to the growth in the aquaculture industry? Because ABES has nothing on aquaculture at this stage. Yeah, look, I think, so. like a lot of um, new industries, I think governments take a while to catch up. So to be fair to government, they work on, let's say, uh, you know, traditional data sets. They have a whole lot of codes that they love to code things by. There isn't even a code for a seaweed farmer. So they go under a thing called hunting and fishing bizarre. So how do we actually get code so that we can actually start measuring their employment, their value and to do that we're going to have to have changes in how we run the digital world. The digital world at the moment is still running on an analogue system it's still the old paper system and they just write it down in a digital spreadsheet it doesn't work so we're going to have to recode our digital landscape so that we can start capturing these new and emerging industries. Why is it important? Because if we don't capture their value in jobs in regional Australia, people who are in policy making will make poor decisions about people's future life. 
And so without good data, how can people make good decisions? It could be healthcare, schooling, it could be roads, infrastructure, freezers, electricity, whatever it is. Without good data to inform people what's happening in regional Australia with these new industries, we won't make good decisions. That's Managing Director of Fisheries Research and Development Corporation, Patrick Hone. Seafood Industry Australia's Aquaculture Policy and Project Officer, Julie Petty, says the industry is undergoing a period of rapid growth and looking to double production value by 2030. Uh, According to ABS statistics, industry is currently sitting around $3 billion in production value. Um, Our target is to double that by 2030. And how do you plan on doing that? So there's a few things, I guess, at foot. Um, One is we're seeing uh, a large increase in value and volume within the aquaculture sector. It's recently taken over wild caught as the most, um, the higher value portion of the industry. I think currently sitting around 52%. It might have just increased a little bit more recently. So we're seeing um, a high increase in the number of um, applications for licences, permits, that sort of stuff, to go out um, and start um, in the aquaculture sector and across, in across a variety of um, industries. So those industries might be whether it's seaweed like asparagopsis or algae, those kind of industries? Are they the main ones? Yes, we're seeing, um, according to some of the, I guess, my contacts that I'm talking to, we're seeing a large increase in the number of applications around seaweed licences. That might include algae as well. We're seeing a diversification too of existing aquaculture producers who might be producing, say, um, salmon, tuna or kingfish, uh, diversifying their businesses into algae and seaweed production as well. Julie Petty, Aquaculture Policy and Project Officer of Seafood Industry Australia, talking there to Alice Marshall. Australia's largest producer of tropical rock lobster says the lack of a Chinese market is destroying the industry. MG Kalis Lobster operates across Australia and has a distribution hub in Cairns, amongst other locations. Fresh lobster is caught in Queensland, PNG, Cape York and Torres Strait waters. Cairns-based manager Peter Frazes says the future's uncertain. He told Lucy Cooper it isn't just China, but logistics that the company is struggling with. Particularly, how do you get high-quality live lobster from remote locations and send them thousands of kilometres away, maintaining that quality? So it's a mixture of uh, methods. So on, at the like, more difficult end, it's a number of small aircraft um, connecting to, like for example... Um, some really remote islands in Torres Strait will catch a, will charter a flight to Horn Island. They'll connect to either a commercial flight or a private flight from Horn Island to Cairns, and then here we process them in our tanks, and then we send them on flights again. And then other methods are uh, motherships, barges, trucks. Um, so yeah, it's basically a logistics um, industry to get it from the reef to Cairns, and then from Cairns to customers. A lot of people involved in this operation. How have you guys gone finding labour and, and especially fishermen? Because there just seems to be less and less of them in the game these days. Yeah, that's definitely correct. Um, becoming harder and harder to have find fishermen, divers for us in particular. Um, and it hasn't helped the trade issue with China because beach prices and prices for fish for lobster are down. So it's hard to attract people and keep people and retain people. Um, because the money's not what it used to be. Um, competing with oil and gas and other industries are definitely not easy at the moment to find staff, but we're managing and getting through it, really. And really, uh, rock lobster is incredibly lucrative. 
In terms of your customer base, is it uh, predominantly domestic? Is it exports? Where, where do you guys send the lobsters to? Yeah, so the highest value product we have is live lobster, and we try to do the majority of our product live, somewhere in the region of 90%, and all that, almost all of that goes to export markets across Asia. Um, and then for the domestic market, we have uh, ta- frozen tails and frozen lobs- whole lobster, um, and a, that's a mixture of domestic and international markets, uh, Sydney, Melbourne, big cities for the domestic market, and then Hong Kong, USA for export. What kind of impact did China closing its doors have on production here and how do you feel about news with the Federal Trade Minister saying that those doors might actually reopen again? Yeah, so the trade difficulty with China is incredibly tough on the industry. Basically been a torturous two years for for the whole supply chain from fishermen to processor to all the contractors and um, people that depend on the industry. Uh, been an incredibly tough two years. Um, the positive um, signs in the media the last few months and even the last week are obviously really encouraging and for our industry it's sort of been forgotten and downtrodden for a while with very limited support. We're sort of just clinging to the hope that um, we can get trade relationship improved as soon as possible. What would that mean for you guys? I mean, you're still in operation, so it's not like it, you're down and out yet because um, China China dropped off, but what would them entering the game mean for you guys? I uh, couldn't overstate how important it is for us to get back to China. Like, it's the value, the price, um, just how hard it's been uh, from for just at the basic level from a financial perspective on all our divers, suppliers, fishermen across Queensland and Torres Strait have been struggling. The beach prices are down a huge amount ever since um, the last two years of uh, basically not being able to sell directly to China. Um, so being, if we can have access to that market again, it's going to be a huge uplift for the whole industry. Has any country been able to fill that gap at all? Uh, there's no real replacement for the China market. The, the tonnage and the value of lobster and a lot of seafood is all dependent on China so there's no matter how much work or marketing or um, talk of uh, diversification none of it's really realistic Uh, the lobster market in particular is dependent on China Um, there's no two ways around it. Peter Frazes, MG Kalis Cairns Manager, speaking with Lucy Cooper about the tropical rock lobster industry. On the text line, Will says, Tumultuous days are still lying ahead of us, Tony, with small hive beetles. Shakespeare's very present in Tasmania today. To be or not to be, that is the question. Or with our hops industry, to beer or not to be. Shakespeare was actually purported to be a very wise but very nervous bushman of bygone days. Thank you for that, Will. I reckon one of his other quotes uh, suits you. Be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great. Some achieve greatness and others have greatness thrust upon them. I think you've had it thrust upon you, Will. Coast to Coast. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, finally, today the role of a field technician is constantly changing and as the machinery evolves, technicians have to evolve with them. Laura Williams, our reporter, spoke with three John Deere field technicians to see what the job looks like in 2023. I'm joined by Jamie Island, Emma Holberg and Ebony Wilkins. Thanks for joining me on the Country Hour. Jamie, let's start off with you. How did you get into the industry of being a field technician? Um, Well, I actually started doing a certificate three in aviation maintenance 
Um, but my circumstances changed where I was living and I wasn't able to continue doing that. So I had to look for something else that I could continue that mechanics working in. I did a couple of work experiences with some ag mechanics that specialize, yeah, working, going out in fields and working on the tractors in, in the field. Um, and then they mentioned that Emmett's were looking for an apprentice. Um, so I applied there and yeah, I got the job and just been working there ever since. It does seem like almost a niche career. I know when I was in high school, it wasn't really something that was, I suppose, marketed towards me. Was it thrown to you as a, oh, would you consider entering this or did you have to seek it out on your own? Uh, I know that I sort of had to like seek it out because when we were in school, a lot of the stuff that we sort of were looking at was all more uni. There wasn't so much, you know, this is an apprenticeship that's available. It was all what uni course do you want to do? Like apprenticeships, I don't think they're actually pushed enough during school because I didn't even really consider it an option until later on. And what about you, Emma? Um, I was in the Navy for six years as Marine Tech and I did the same thing. I applied for uni. Um, I didn't want to go to uni and got into uni and knew I was going to the Navy, so I went to the Navy and that was a tech role. Yeah, I didn't come out with a trade, so I really wanted to get my trade and and that's basically how I got the job. So is being interested in agriculture a prerequisite for the job? I kind of assumed it starts off as you love ag and you go from there looking for a job, but it sounds like you all found it in, in different kind of ways. Yeah, I think having an interest in ag, it helps a lot in the role just having um, some kind of background in it, but me myself, like I haven't, didn't grow up on a farm or anything, so I, I just sort of fell on it, and it seems like the other girls are sort of in the same same position. I actually grew up on a farm for yeah my whole life, so that's how I decided I wanted to do it. What are the best parts of the job? I think like getting to go and meet the farmers, and you know having talks with them about you know what they think is the best equipment or the worst equipment, you know what advantages and disadvantages all the different machines have is like quite interesting to listen to them and you know hear their opinions on the flip side to that what are some of i suppose the challenges that maybe you didn't anticipate when you entered the field i think one of my biggest challenges was being not as strong as the boys um you know lifting things and cracking bolts all that sort of thing i've obviously found um some kind of advantage like mechanically and overcome that but that's definitely been one of the biggest struggles I've had for me being out in the field when I roll up on a farm uh, and I meet meet the farmer for the first time if I haven't done any work for him before and he doesn't know me just that initial introduction like they're not used to having females out there as much so then they're not sure whether they can trust you straight away some have said that to my face, you know, or made comments like, oh, are you coming on your own? You bring someone, you know, that knows what they're doing or sort of thing. So there's a lot of trying to overcome that stereotype that, you know, females can do it too. How does it feel to prove them wrong? Oh, it's a great feeling. Like they definitely change their whole view on it afterwards. They think it's great work. And some of them after that, when you prove them wrong, they ask for me to come back. Um, next time instead of anyone else. So that's a great feeling. Yeah, I bet. And just on that, this week is International Women's Day. It feels like 
panels like these where it's all women and it's the question I suppose you're expected to ask is what's it like to be a woman in the field it's so male dominated is that a question we still need to ask I think there's definitely still work to do but there are a lot more females coming into the game which is awesome to see because you know the more we get and the more girls that are good at the job and can prove that we can do it just as well as the boys you know it gives us a good good name to start with I think um, a lot of farmers are like very keen for females like I've had a lot of encounters where you know they're like oh my god it's like there's a female this is amazing you know she's going to be so good and you have like this instant high standard which is like great it's so entertaining to see you know them being all supportive and it's almost like they take you under their wing they're like you know you're going to be good you don't you know you don't have to question it you know they're really supportive um I'm the same I've had like positive experiences with farmers a lot of them possibly go a bit far over the top when they see a girl come on site they're just constantly like this is so good that there's a female um, apprentice and I just think females can bring a lot to the job they're so much more articulate um but then they just go over the top and it makes it kind of awkward as well and just circling back to your actual job your role is a mechanic and an auto electrician in one because technology in this space keeps updating and it's your role to be able to be a jack or a jill of many trades in terms of being able to fix so many things. That technology, it's designed to make it easier and more efficient for the user. What's it like to be at the back end of that fixing that? Has it made your job harder or easier? Yeah, I think um, everything is advancing. It does make our job a bit harder because there's a lot more that we're going to have to learn um, and become better diagnostic technicians. It's not just a simple, you know, mechanical fault that you can sort of find a lot easier, but it's going to be a lot more um, on the computers. Plus, everything's going to be going autonomous um, in the near future, which is going to bring another, another challenge for us. But I love learning, so it's going to be exciting at the same time. Yeah, it's sort of, it's very interesting to see like all the different technologies that there is like at the moment. And, you know, there's so much stuff that we just, we don't even know about yet. That's, you know, a whisper in the winds, you know, like, could this even be an option? And, you know, we've, we've already come so far in, if you look at like the last 20 years, we have auto steer, we have, you know, sea and spray, we have so many of these different programs and all their uses. And like, you know, this is just the start of it. That's reporter Laura Williams speaking with Jamie Ireland, Emma Holmberg and Ebony Wilkins. They are three field technicians with John Deere and uh, involved in the industry, taking care of the uh, the tractors and the big harvesters and doing a good job there too. Now, just a reminder before we go, the uh, police and emergency service remain at the scene of a single truck crash on the Tasman Highway. It's on the causeway between Sorrell and Midway Point. Truck currently in the water and the causeway is blocked. And at this stage, no serious injuries have been reported, thankfully. And motorists are asked to avoid that area and take an alternate route until the scene is clear. So go around the, uh, the other way, back through the scenic way around the vineyards. Uh, don't forget ABC Rural Online. Plenty of great stories there on ABC Rural Facebook page. And tomorrow, the Parana wheeling, wheeling sale is on at the moment. It's about 3,000 cattle going under the hammer. And our reporter, Richard Bailey, will be on the program tomorrow to uh, detail what sort of prices are there at Parana today. Big sale there. So we're uh, looking forward to that one on tomorrow's Country Hour. That's our program for today. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.